All right, good morning. Let's go ahead and grab a seat and we'll get started. Welcome to the Tuesday morning men's Bible study here at Park City's Presbyterian Church. My name is Paul, one of the pastors here. We're glad that you are here this morning as we continue our study through prayers of the Bible. Hopefully by now you've got a group that you are meeting with. That's what all these numbers are for. And so if you do not have a group, make sure you see me or Elaine so we can get you connected to a group. That's the most important part of our morning this morning is that you would actually process uh, this particular prayer we're going to look like in Ephesians uh, together uh, as men looking at God's word in community. Uh, So I want to pray and then we're going to jump right into the book of Ephesians. This morning we're looking at Paul's prayer in the middle of his letter to the church at Ephesus for strength. Let's pray. Um, Father in heaven, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for the gift that it is. We thank you that it literally is what we hold in our hands this morning is your very word to us and for us. And we thank you that in it tells the story of your son, Jesus, who is the word. And so we pray that nothing less, that you, Holy Spirit, would change us this morning. That as we uh, avail ourselves of this means of grace that you've given to us in your word, that we would be changed, that we would come with great expectation, that as we think about prayer and how we pray, why we pray, who we pray to, what we pray for, as we think about some of these simple ideas about prayer, that not only would it change the way that we pray, uh, but it would change us, it would change our hearts. And so we ask, Lord, draw near to us this morning uh, in our time together, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So please, yeah, grab a Bible, um, turn to Ephesians 3, that's where we're going to be this morning. If you're just joining us, we are uh, this fall together working our way through prayers of the Bible. And if you're trying to figure out what does that actually mean, it's self-explanatory, right? Don't think about it too hard. We're looking at different prayers in the Bible with the goal of not just, you know, here's some prayers that you could pray verbatim, which could be good. Uh, this morning would be one of those, would be a great example prayer for you to literally spend time as you pray going through the scriptures, but also that as we study these prayers and their context, that it would change the way that we pray and ultimately that it would change our hearts and teach us who we are as uh, men and as sons praying to God as our father. This morning, it's a little different in that we're not looking at a narrative, we're not looking at a story, we're looking at a letter. And we're looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. We don't have time this morning to look at the entire book. Uh, Some years ago, we actually studied the book of Ephesians together as a men's Bible study. If you're interested in that, you can go back and listen to some of those. Uh, But we are really starting this letter in the middle, in Ephesians 3, where Paul seems to take a pause uh, as the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are, are kind of shifting to the last three by offering this prayer for the Ephesian church, asking for spiritual strength. And that's what I want to look at this morning with you for just a few brief moments. Before I do, uh, this is how I want to begin. Some years ago, I went on sabbatical. And on my sabbatical, I um, you know, had one idea of what it was going to look like <laughs> and my agenda of how I'd spend my time and what I would study. And then there's what the Lord had for me. And I love that so much. And Um, There are so many different ways that God surprised me, but one of the things I stumbled upon was the work of a sociologist named Philip Reef. 
Now, um, since then, what's interesting is I keep hearing his name pop up in different Christian books that I've read. And it could be one of those things, I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, where his name was always there, and I just didn't know it, so I never saw it. And then now that I've seen it, you know, I see it everywhere. But it's interesting, especially in the last couple years, how often I'm hearing theologians and thinkers and Christian philosophers talk about the work of this sociologist named Philip Reef. And part of the reason is that Reef critiqued our psychological culture back in the 1960s. And what he did is he tried to explain the phenomenon that he was seeing in the 60s of this kind of individualism and feeling. And the idea that what I feel has more truth than anything else. That idea that was already beginning to brew back in the 60s that we now, today, fast forward 60 years later, has become commonplace in our culture. So one of the reasons I think we're seeing his name everywhere, and for you, maybe you're like, well, I've never heard his name at all. Um, but one of the reasons why I think he's popping up is because we are living more and more in a culture where that has become the norm, where what we feel is what is to be true, and what I feel as an individual has more weight and bearing on what the community thinks, what the community believes. And one of the books that he wrote back in the 1960s is called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, where he talked about the difference between the religious man and the psychological man. Okay? So think about it this way. I know it's early, and you're like, Paul, why are we talking about this? It's like, I just woke up, right? But don't think about it too hard. It's actually pretty simple. The religious man, he argued, was the norm. That if you look back throughout history... The idea of belief in community was the way that human beings functioned. And that through um, the influence of not just Freud, but many others, it began to give rise to the psychological man. Where it was no longer religion, but it was feeling. No longer community, but individual. Are you with me so far? So if you want to know it this way, uh, one of the great kind of quotes from this book says that the religious man was born to be saved. Okay? The psychological man was born to be pleased. See the difference? The religious man born to be saved. Psychological man born to be pleased. Now I want you to apply that to prayer. I asked a question on Sunday morning uh, from the pulpit. What is the content of your prayer? If you are a prayer, if that's part of your habit, a part of you following Jesus, that you have the discipline of praying, what is the content of your prayer? This morning I want to ask a different question. Who is the subject of your prayer? In your prayer life, who is the primary subject? And I want you to think about Reef's distinction between the religious man and the psychological man. For the religious man, the primary subject of prayer is God. One who needs to, be, to, to come and to save us, right? For the, the psychological man, who's the primary subject of prayer? Me. Because the psychological man is born to be pleased. And as you begin to think about your prayer life and think about the way that even you were taught to pray, I want you to think about who's, the pri- who's been the primary subject? How much time do you spend praying 
where things are focused here and on yourself versus how much of your prayer is centered on God himself. And what we're going to see in the book of Ephesians is an example of a very God-centered prayer. And what I want to put before you is that actually praying God-centered prayer actually helps meet your greatest need. That when you turn your focus off of self and individual and onto the person work of Jesus Christ, that you will then begin to get to the true heart of prayer. Not offering prayers just to be pleased, treating God like a vending machine to dispense things for you, but actually meeting your greatest need, which is your salvation. So this is how I want to start. I want to talk first about Paul's posture in prayer. I want you to look at me at Ephesians 3, verse 14, and we'll notice together how Paul begins this prayer. Now, he says, for this reason, and again, I don't have time to get into all of the first three chapters of Ephesians, but at this point, we've seen the glory and beauty of salvation, the idea that in love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters, that though we were um, plagued by sin, that we were dead in our trespasses, that God has sent his son Jesus, all of these things have been building in the book of Ephesians leading to this moment where he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. And so the first thing I want you to see is that prayer is not actually primarily about you and me. That when we are praying, we are addressing God, and so our prayers must be God-centered. And notice the posture of Paul. There's a physical posture with which he approaches this prayer. Notice what he says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, you might just skip over that and think, well, that's just kind of a a phrase, um, a, a way of talking about prayer. But I want you to think about the actual physical act of bowing. And don't think about your own physical posture in prayer. There's lots of ways that we pray. At times we pray corporately. And when we pray corporately, maybe in a church setting like this, we're praying in a pew or sitting. Uh, If you've ever been in our chapel, in our chapel we actually have a different piece of furniture that we're able to use when we have, say, midweek Vesper service or different prayer gatherings. And you know what it is? It's a kneeling bench. It's actually a pretty amazing piece of furniture. It's a little thing in front, if you haven't been in there, that's behind every pew that you can pull out as a little cushion. And it allows you to kneel. Now, why would we put a kneeling bench in a chapel? Because there's a very real sense that practicing the posture of bowing in prayer changes how we think about who we are praying to, and who we are. To bow before God as Father is to show him reverence, to show him honor, to show him um, a sense of his majesty and glory. And think about the way that you pray. And though you might not physically bow, but do you spiritually bow before you pray? 
And, and I would argue, if you don't, if you find yourself coming to God in prayer with a bit of a chip on your shoulder or a bit um, selfish or self-centered, I would, actually, um, I would actually advise you to practice and try physically bowing. And notice what the practice of actually physically bowing will do, not just your physical posture, but your spiritual posture as well. So here's Paul, he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And then notice what he says, from whom every family and earth on heaven and earth is named. So not only is prayer not about you because it's about God, but notice how corporate Paul's prayer is. It's not just an individual thing, but he's saying, look, I'm praying to God who is the Father from whom every family on earth is named. There's a corporate reality of what Paul is praying about. And notice even Paul's prayer in of itself is for a community. It's for a church. And look, I'm not saying that every one of our prayers needs to be for other people, although that should be part of our prayer life. The ministry of intercession, praying for others. I'm not saying it's bad to pray for yourself. Don't, don't hear me wrong, but I'm saying that as you pray, even for your own needs, you are jo- joining an entire church and community and people who are praying alongside you. That the act of prayer, even when you're praying by yourself, is corporate. As we come to God together, from our various places, our various days, our various paths, all of us, by being a part of God's church, God's people, being united to Jesus together makes us united to one another. So our prayer must be God-centered, it must also be corporate. And if you look at how Paul is praying here, he's, he's recognizing that who he's praying to must be how prayer begins. Because who you pray to is going to then determine what you pray for. So it's the second thing I want you to notice. What is he praying for? Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's a load. (laughs) That's a lot. Let me read it again. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So what is Paul praying for? Paul is praying for our need. That ultimately our greatest need is that we need to be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. That without the Holy Spirit, we are weak, we are feeble, we are desperate, we are dependent, we are needy. And so what I want you to begin to see is that when you come in prayer and you're bringing a need, whatever it might be, that simple act of bringing that need to the Father. That, that doing that is not the problem. Doing that is not making your prayer self-centered. It's that when you bring that need, do you realize the need underneath the need? Do, do, you, do you see that who you are before God, as you come and bring your request to Him, 
that there is something even deeper than whatever practical need you might need or pray for today. And we need to pray for all of those. But just how deep does your prayer life go? Paul says, I am praying that you would be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. That the power of the Holy Spirit would not just strengthen you here and physically, but your innermost being. Why? And this is where I want to spend both of our time. Why? Why is this Paul's prayer? In the next several verses, we're going to just take this verse by verse. I want you to see how Paul then describes our greatest need. Why do we need the Spirit? And I want you to begin to look at the content of your own prayer. And I want you to begin to compare this prayer, a God-centered prayer, to your own prayers and allow it to begin to shape how you think about prayer, how you think about yourself, but most importantly, how you think about our gracious God. Why does Paul pray for this? Look with me, verse 17. This is the first reason why. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's not a greater need than that. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That your heart would be occupied not by anxiety and the cares of this world, but it would be occupied and indwelled by Jesus. By Jesus himself would dwell in your hearts through faith. And that the second reason that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. First, the reason why Paul's praying for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us is because we need Jesus to dwell in us through faith. The second is because the love of God for us is so big, so incomprehensible, so wide, so deep, that you cannot even fathom it. It's too big. And so we need the Holy Spirit just to sort of comprehend it, just to understand it, just to receive it. And if you don't think that is true, I want you to really think about, have you truly fully grasped God's love for you? Have you received it? A way that you might answer that question is to look at the way that you live, and to look at even the way that you live for him and for others. And how much time do you spend trying to earn God's love versus receive the love that he has for you that is so big, so incomprehensible, so massive, that Paul is praying that we would get the Holy Spirit just to understand it. But then there's a third reason of why Paul prays that we would be strengthened by the Spirit. Notice it's at the end of verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's just think about that for a second. That the fullness of God would indwell you. So brothers, let me ask you an honest question. <laughs> Does that describe your everyday life? That the fullness of God has filled you to your innermost being. Okay, so let me ask the question again. Compare 
all the things that Paul just prayed for to the things that you pray for. And what I don't want you to do now in this moment is to experience shame or to feel like if you're like me, well, my prayers are terrible. (laughs) That's not what I'm after. What I'm actually after is actually that you'd begin to see that there is a much bolder, much greater prayer that is knit with a much bolder and greater love. That when you bring sometimes um, requests to God that you're not sure if he cares about, maybe they seem too small, maybe they seem too unnecessary. I was meeting with somebody just the other day and I asked if I could pray for them and they said, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. And I was like, well, why, why not? Why can't I pray for you? And he looked at me, and you know what he said? He said, my needs don't matter. If you've ever felt that way, if you've ever felt like prayer is kind of worthless or meaningless because your life doesn't matter, God, here's what I want you to know. <laughs> Read the Apostle Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. And see that not only does our every need matter, but there's a need underneath the need. It's a far greater need that you could ever possibly imagine. And it's actually met with a far greater love than you know. Paul prays that we would receive the Holy Spirit so that we would be given faith, so that we could believe in Jesus, so that we could understand God's love for us, and so that we could be nothing less than filled with the fullness of God. That is staggering. That is massive. That is an unbelievable need that you would bring that to God and say, would you fill me with the fullness of God? And it's even more unbelievable that what Paul is saying is the answer to that prayer is yes. (laughs) Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God's answer is yes. Why is Paul praying for strength? Because this is our greatest need. Lastly, where I want to end is who is Paul praying to. I began by saying, comparing the idea of the religious man to the spiritual man. The man who wants just to be pleased versus the man who wants to be saved. And being shaped by our self-centered prayers versus our God-centered prayers. And I want you to notice something about this prayer. And I want you to look at the whole. So start in verse 14 and look all the way to verse 19. Okay? You have it there? So you can look on your sheet Look at the whole thing, and I want you to notice something about Paul's prayer. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened through the power of his spirit. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I bow before the Father that you would have the power of the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Do you see it? Not only is this a God-centered prayer, this is a Trinitarian prayer. All three members of the Trinity here in just three verses. Paul understood who he was praying to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as he approached God as Trinity, I want you to notice 
who Paul understood the Trinity to be and how the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, actually shaped what he is asking for. As he approaches God the Father, notice he says, I'm going to bow. If I see God as Father, I see him, as we looked at the very first week of our prayer uh, study together on Sunday mornings, that if we see God as Father, we are seeing him as a God who not only loves us and is intimate, but also a God who is transcendent, who knows our every need and cares for us. So as he comes to God the Father, he bows in this posture. He shows him reverence. But he also recognizes in verse 16, as he comes to God the Holy Spirit, that he knows that the Spirit brings power. The Spirit brings transformation. The Spirit is now at work in all those who are followers of Jesus. And he's asking that the Spirit would come in power to work the gospel deep into the heart and the innermost being. So that lastly, in verse 17, that Christ the Son and all that Christ has done for us through the gospel would now be rooted in us and that our faith would be placed on the Son, on his finished work. Paul's prayer is not only God-centered, but it's Trinitarian. And even his vision of God as Trinity is shaping how he is praying, what he is praying for, and why he is praying for it. And all of this then ends with worship. Look at verse 20. So as Paul is bringing all of these things, these requests, to God as Trinity, this is how Paul's prayer ends. It's a doxology, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's a powerful way to end a prayer, to end with worship. But as Paul makes these requests, he is worshiping God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And notice what he says in verse 20, that God is able to do more than we ask or think. If you've ever thought your prayer is too small, Paul is proving it right here. He can do even more than you ask or think far more abundantly, that he wants to reach the innermost part of your being, to strengthen you with the power that is work within us, the end of verse 20. Why all for his glory, verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Okay, so practically, before you go to your tables, what do you do with this? What do you do with a prayer like this? And as you think about your own prayer life and you compare this to Paul's, if what the solution here today is not, um, well, be ashamed of the way that you pray. <laughs> How, I mean, who, who, are, who are we to compare ourselves to the Apostle Paul, right? Maybe you're thinking that too. But practically, what do you do with this? The next time that you pray, maybe it's today, maybe it's tonight, maybe it's tomorrow, I want you to start right here. And I want you to begin to practice something that for some of you might be brand new, some of you maybe you've done before, and some of you this might be your normal habit. 
But before you get into all of your requests for God, which again, I think are right and good, whatever they are, whatever your list is, whatever your prayer concerns, whether they're for yourself or for other people in our community or for your family, all are right and good. But before you go there, I want you to start here. And what I want you to do is I want you to get out the, God's word. I want you to get out Ephesians 3, verse 14. And I want you to verse by verse pray this. I don't want you to just pray it verbatim and stop there, although that would be enough. But I want you to allow the scripture to root and ground your prayer. That as you begin to think about the things that you want God to do, start here. Start in verse 14 and say, for this reason, I bow my knees before you, my father. Well, what reason? Well, because of all that you've done for me, Jesus, for everything you've done for me on the cross, I'm now bowing to you, God, as father. I can even call you father only because of what your son did for me. You see what you're doing? You're starting with God's word and you're allowing that to be your prompt, that to be the thing that grounds and roots your prayer. So that as you then begin to meet and with him, and as you begin to work through each verse, that eventually when you get to your requests, you know who you're praying to. You're knowing what he really has done for you. And you're knowing that whatever small or however large, whatever thing that's on your heart that you want to pray, that he has already met your greatest need. And that he delights to send his spirit to strengthen you. That whatever it is that you face today, however big, however small, that he wants to strengthen your innermost being so that you would receive the Spirit, so that you would believe in Jesus, and that so you would be filled with the fullness of God. Let me pray for you, and let me send you to your table. Lord, we, um, so we think about prayer, and we think about the content of our prayer, and even what has taught us to pray as men over many years for some of us, and for some of us, we're just learning to pray. I pray that uh, you would be our teacher. And that as we work through even these various prayers through our semester together, that as we even change the way that we pray or try new ways to pray, that we would do so um, not out of embarrassment and certainly not out of shame, but that we would see that there is actually a grace in centering our prayers not on ourselves but on you. That when we center our prayer on you, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that it gives us confidence to bring our every request and every need to your throne. And so I pray for my brothers now as they talk about this in their groups, that as they work through Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, and as they think about their own prayer life, that I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, by your power, strengthen them in their innermost being, that you would guard their hearts and minds from shame because of their lack of prayer or because of the way that they pray, but that because of you, Father, that you would lavish them with a love that is incomprehensible, that they would be able to comprehend how wide and how deep and how massive your love for them is. And that they today, because of the finished work of your son Jesus on the cross, that 
they today would be filled with the fullness of God. We thank you that you have invited us to pray these things. We thank you that you've given us a model prayer to teach us how to pray. And we thank you, God, that we can read a prayer like this and have every confidence that everything we read here is actually ours through faith by the power of the Spirit today, right here and right now. May that be true of us in Jesus' name. Amen.